Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me, as this episode kind of relates to the last one, where I read an opinion piece that had been published in Stuff, and it's all about director duties and changes which are coming up. Now, Dr. Duncan Webb, who's the Labor MP for Christchurch Central, was the author of the Members Bill, which is discussed in that article. So I reached out to him, and this just shows the accessibility of New Zealand politics. Um, Within a couple days, we were sitting down having this interview. So I know a lot of you who listen to this podcast are really interested in the future of business and what it might actually become. So you'll be really curious to hear what Duncan has to say about the origins of the bill and how flexible he thinks it will be in terms of changes as it goes through the select committee stages. The LinkedIn post that I did about these changes has had a whole bunch of people commenting, including over in the UK, where they've been advocating for a Better Business Act, which actually jumps over the current status that they have, which is similar to what Duncan's proposing in his bill. And it just makes me wonder if we could do that here in New Zealand as well and be true world leaders. Anyway, we get into all of that during the interview. But before that, we have a great discussion about Duncan's background and what it is that's led him to become a politician, what that's like, and even a few behind-the-scenes insights into Jacinda Ardern and her leadership style. I know you're going to enjoy this, so we're going to get straight into it. If you do, then don't forget there's more than 270 other interviews in the back catalog. What I'm trying to do with Seeds is build up a database of stories of inspiring people, usually going for 45 minutes to an hour, where we really find out about their lives. The final thing to mention before we get into the interview is that I talk in the conversation with Duncan about a book that I've been writing, and in a couple weeks I'll be releasing a book of essays called Laying the Foundations for Reimagining Business. And I'm really interested to get as many of you as possible to write an advanced review of that book. So if you're interested, drop me a line at stephen at theseeds.nz, and I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find out more about the book. Now let's get into this conversation with Duncan. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Duncan Webb to the podcast. Thanks uh, for joining me. It's really good to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me over. Yeah, no worries. Um, we're actually live in the same city anyway, so it's, it's going to be great to hear a little bit about um, what you're up to today. But before we talk about that, I'd like to go back in time. So we've got a little time machine over here. <laughs> if we could roll back the years and just tell us about where you were living and what life was like for you, even when you were, say, five years old. Oh well, five years old was a time of change. I was um, I was living in southeast London then, so uh, I'm imagining you're a bit of an immigrant mm-hmm. from your voice. My voice, uh, my accent disappeared long ago, but I used to uh, speak with an East End accent, uh, and my parents came to New Zealand as many did then, uh, and of course now. But from the UK then was quite a quite a large number of people came to start new lives, and me and my two brothers came over, and here we are. So where were they living in the East End? Yeah, sort of down in Woolwich, which is not quite the East End. It would be a bit of a stretch to say it was the East End, yeah. um, but certainly that that part of London and England is um, is familiar. And yeah, when I get go back there, it's uh, always always interesting to hear all my family, uh, you know, and all what they've done and the lives they've lived, and just to think how far how far we have um, kind of separated in the paths we took. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I lived in London for three years. My wife is English, um, so she came from Hartford, just north of London. Yeah, sure. But when we lived there, this was um, basically 2004, 2007 sort of era. We were living in Hackney. Oh, so there you go. We got to know the East End really well. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, the Victoria Park there, we used to run around that. It's yeah. really nice. Oh, there's some fantastic spots down there. Yeah, yeah. and we, the amazing thing there in the East End is just the diversity of cultures. Like, you had so many different people from all over the world. Yeah, and I like to think, you know, because it is part of my heritage, that um, that old East End culture, the, you know, jelly deals and markets and strange uh, pub music, and that's all, it's got a special niche of its own. And um, I think it's, you know, certainly my grandparents uh, lived it. Um, and it's probably fading a little bit, but it's, uh, it's still strong in places. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you have strong memories then of that that age like or oh, not strong i mean as we all know is you know that was quite some time ago now yeah. um but uh but distinct memories and, you know people know and of course i have stayed in touch with family so you know you can refresh it which is what getting back there when you can is although that's not that easy right now yeah and the um the reason for leaving and coming to new zealand did your parents talk about that much oh it's an interesting story um the you know, in one sense, it was just the the, the dream of a new life, and uh, of course, um, in the nineteen seventies, which is when it was, it wasn't a matter of going to a faraway place and coming back if you didn't like it. It was a pr- pretty much a one way trip. Right. Um, and but my parents um, had recently become Christian, uh, you know, evangelical Christians, mm-hmm. and they thought that uh, that was what God wanted them to do. And right. ultimately, my dad became a pastor of a church in Aranui, the Māori Evangelical Fellowship, wow. um, and did that for several years, uh, and that was his calling. So that was part of the part of the call, huh. an unusual uh, thing for a, you know, a junior accountant from southeast london to do yeah well i guess it's called to the ends of the earth right if you yeah put it in a, in that's a religious right. frame like we're going <laughs> as far away as we possibly can that's right <laughs> and how do you, do you know how new zealand came on the radar then was it oh um my mother had a brother here already and, okay. and, and you know new zealand's always been um like australia but you know well known as a essentially a place the english people in particular um have arrived and been welcomed yeah so what age were you when you arrived i was six Six. yeah so i think it was 1974 yeah yeah and what were your first memories it must have been oh well it's quite different right we arrived in summer and uh the summer was hotter and brighter and uh all of those kinds of things so Mm -hmm. um they were the first memories and um you know, meeting distant family, the uncle, uh, we stayed with them uh, first, you know, first up and just getting and of course, um, all of a sudden being different because we spoke funny, uh, those kinds of things for right. a child stand out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Different accent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, describe then, I guess, your childhood. Um, yeah. What type of things did you enjoy in this new, new location and things? Yeah. Well, I guess, um, I guess the real change was the way we lived because 
London was a very much an urban environment, right? And you know, the, I recall the school I went to there briefly um, had no grass. It was a, the, the outdoor area was all asphalt. Um, and you come to New Zealand um, and lived in firstly in um, Aranui and then in South Brighton, and it's all open areas. So long summers with beaches and estuaries and fishing and you know building huts in the woods or the forests that were there. It's an entirely different kind of um, experience than you know would have had if I'd continued to live in a in, in London. Yeah. Mm. So would you say that the outdoors became yeah, absolutely you know, yeah a big part and have grown to love the outdoors right something that is much less likely when you live in what what is a mega city right mm. it's so much harder even friends who have chosen to live in London if they like hiking or mountain biking or whatever to do to really do it. Um, it's a it's a, a significant endeavor. Yeah, it's actually a mission, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. It was actually it's funny you say that because that was a big part of our criteria. Because I said my wife is from England. Yeah. So it was kind of like that fork in the road. Like, do we go back to England or do we stay here or where do we go? And this was a big part of it because we've got young kids, and it was like, okay, live in central London or live in Christchurch, New Zealand. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like she just went up skiing. You know. Tuesday yeah, I mean, that's right. And was gone for the day and back and picked up the kids. And it's like, you, you couldn't do yeah, that. That's right. You can come back and cook dinner. Yeah, <laughs> Whereas yeah. Yeah, somewhere like London, doing activity like that is so much harder. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So then describe, I guess, coming through high school years, were there subjects that really stood out to you that you enjoyed? I, oh, I know goodness. you ended up studying law eventually. So. Yeah, 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 sure. I, in a sense, um, a bit of a magpie when it comes to what I study. Um, and... And I enjoyed mostly enjoyed school, um, but found myself doing things like classical studies and English were probably my strengths. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I still enjoyed all the sciences and maths. So just one day you have to when you, you know, start on the path of university, you, you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's when I actually took a raft of different papers, including philosophy and sociology and and law and managed to scrape through um, and it genuinely was a scrape through in that first year yeah. and law seemed like a good idea at the time and you know it wasn't one of those things where I always dreamed of being a lawyer mm. um, but it was uh, you know it's it's a very human endeavour and I think that's what attracted me to it. Mm. And all through that time the high school years is that when your father was involved with the church as well? Uh, or Yeah I mean my dad's done a number of um, jobs including working as a social worker at the city mission mm-hmm. um, and like I say working as the pastor of the Māori Evangelical Fellowship and working with the Kingdom Trust who does budget advice mm-hmm. which isn't far from here yep. um, and exactly when the start and end dates for those jobs are probably escapes me but it was a you know for a long time as a pastor for a long time certainly um, right through my childhood yeah. yeah and the church itself it, it sounds like it would have been a really unique very place. unique and very strange that um, my Dad was the pastor of it because the Māori Evangelical Fellowship is, it was a small group of churches across New Zealand, okay. um, but it was directed. It wasn't, um, you know, exclusively Māori, but it was directed to minister particularly to Māori. You know, the hymns were in Māori, and uh, you know there was a, some tikanga and there were tangi. Uh, often the funerals were held in a traditional way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it was um, an unusual situation that we found ourselves, um, you know, immigrants. Yeah. But in some ways, that's just the welcoming nature. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from East London, and then here you are. Yeah. Your father's helping to lead this church. So yeah. I don't think, I, I, I think it's fair to say, I don't think that would happen today. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite rangatiratanga. <laughs> yeah. And so what are your memories? I'm, I'm just curious about that sort of that, I guess, juxtaposition, you know, for you, for example. What was it like being involved in the church? Uh, and well, as a child, um, I think you're just so accepting of things, right? And mm. um, certainly when your parents tell you you're going to go to a foreign country and live, uh, you know there's going to be significant change, right? It's um, one of those things. You, you don't know what it's going to be. Mm. So I, I, you know, sure I remember it all being new, um, but children are very accepting, right? And I didn't see that there was anything particularly strange about it being a whole different set of cultural frameworks mm, yeah. but can I just say to my enduring shame I, I didn't uh, learn te reo or neither can I sing beautifully um, you know Māori hymns um, and yeah so I, uh, what I should have done had I known where I was going to end up I should have absorbed every tiny bit of it yeah. um, but as a um, 7 to 14 year old sitting in church is sitting in church Right. <laughs> it didn't matter what was there, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. So then um, talk us through, because it sounds like we share a similar path in some ways, because in my first year at, at Canterbury, I remember I did biology, sociology, history, law. You know, it was like a whole yeah. range of things. And then, you know, made it into the second year. So I was like, oh, well, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, was it... A little bit like that, yeah. And I mean, um, I... Unlike most students nowadays, I did only a law degree, so which immediately precluded kind of picking up interesting papers in the right. humanities uh, or wherever. Um, so that's that was, and I actually went back a bit later in life and picked up some of that other stuff because mm. I think, it, and I've always kind of been intellectually curious. But yeah, it was pretty much um, did that broad, very broad first year, and I you know absolutely encouraged that. Mm. Um, and like you say, finally thinking I. Law seems like a reasonable path. And look, to be fair, there's an element of um, having grown up with a father being pastor of a very small church. I knew what not having lots of money looked like, and I thought a profession which made life a little more comfortable couldn't be a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. It, for me, part of it as well was the challenge, because I remember in the first lecture in my first year, I don't know if they did this when you were there, but they said, of the 400 of you or whatever, half of you will be gone or something like that. It was like, oh, this is a this is quite competitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think something like that was. I think they've stopped that now. I think it was not considered to be the best uh, and right. most encouraging thing to say that um, you know half of you will fail. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is a. And I don't think it's necessarily failure to, you know, I wouldn't make that very clear. Mm. Uh, maybe um, not being a lawyer is winning. Mm. <laughs> so, well, I always viewed it like I didn't know if I would become a lawyer or not. I just viewed it as a key that would open doors. Sure. And, you know, whether I became a lawyer or got into business or whatever, it does teach you sort of a logical way of thinking and, and a way of, you know, reasoning and things. Yeah, so. I think that's right. And, um, you know, because obviously, oh, well, one of my jobs was teaching law for a very long time mm. um, and it all, uh, it, if you're teaching people to be lawyers in the next few years teaching this the substantive law has a place right but at the end of the day you can't teach it all um, so all you can really teach is good investigative skills mm. um, good analytic and reading skills um, and good 
communication and expression skills and yeah. that's really what people take away from it i think yeah yeah i agree with you i had ursula cheer on the podcast before oh, awesome. and she was describing her life because of course she's had about three careers through yeah. the law um actually involved in parliament but then also as a as a lawyer herself and then as a you know the dean yeah. of the law school and yeah it really opened up her you know Opportunities. Yeah, and I think that's right. And a lot of people just do exceedingly well, um, you know, in business or, or in the humanities, you know, in the arts. Um, and somehow the law seems to always play a part. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So you're getting to the end of your, you know, university studies. Did you know that you wanted to become a lawyer, or yeah? Well, I'm not sure you know my history, um, but because we're sitting in the offices here of small or med- medium-sized Christchurch law firm called Perry Field, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's a Great firm, uh, and it's pretty well known. Um, and when I finished law school, unlike all my peers, I was just focused on getting through those last months. And yeah. when I realised I probably could do with a job, um, I sort of hunted around for connections. And my dad said, well, Perry Field's a good firm. Oh. Why don't you call them? So I did. Uh, and there's a partner here then called partner Van R- Peter Van Rye, yep. who I think's retired now. He's upstairs right now. Oh, there yeah, you go. He's I a consultant now. And uh, they didn't have a job, but they had a huge uh, book of outstanding debts. Uh, and they said, look, we haven't got a job, but you can have some temporary work. Huh. Collect all of our bad debts. Right. Um, so I sat by the photocopier for six months, uh, helping them with their credit control. Wow. Uh, and after that, they were like, oh, you seem to be a lot of bad bloke. Um, we'll take you on. So my first job was um, at Parryfield uh, in the central city when there was a central city firm working with... Um, Peter and Colin Eason and, and Ken Lord and yeah. Alan Bruce and, and, and some others. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so there you go. I wondered if you knew that little snippet. No, I didn't. I needed to do more research. That's awesome, though. That's a full, a full history of the, of the firm. Now you're back here. Ah. That's right. So how long did you end up doing that job for? I actually uh, worked with Perryfield, not for that long, as a lot of young lawyers kind of find their feet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about three years. Um, and then I... Um, Got an assistant lectureship at Massey University, okay. uh, teaching in the business school, teaching law in the business school, mm-hmm. um, and uh, lived in Palmerston North for a couple of years, and then moved to Auckland where they were launching their Albany campus for a couple of years, hmm. um, and then uh, Victoria University, and then did full circle and came back to Canterbury and taught there. So, all in all, the academic life was about seventeen years. Wow. And what was your main topic then? Oh, well, this is the great thing about academia, right? You can invent yourself and reinvent yourself time and time again. Um, When I started in the business school, of course, I was a commercial lawyer because that's how you got a job. Mm. Um, And then moved to um, Victoria and taught some papers there, some business papers. Mm -hmm. Um, Banking law was uh, an insurance law I taught there as well as first year law. Um, and but then I started teaching ethics uh, and that was kind of the next iteration of my career at a time where it just so happened that it was a real need um, for some focus on that in the legal profession mm-hmm. um, and I wrote one of the textbooks that's now used and helped the law study write their rules of conduct and client care that I hope you know um, in detail. Of course, memorized. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so you really were able to kind of, it's interesting how careers develop, isn't it? Like you start off here and then you end up doing this. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and look, but that's what, you know, the point about the law, right? And the good thing about that legal ethics um, kind of study was it it isn't just about knowing the rules, it's also about trying to understand how the legal profession 
profession interacts with wider society, what its function is, and the real tensions mm. inherent um, between being a person who's wanting to make uh, a business work, at, but having a wider and critical and constitutional function in society that doesn't answer to a profit motive, right? And mm. there's a lot of tension in there. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I did my stepping up course, so that's when you become a partner, I think you came and, and Yeah, shared. that's right. Yeah, Was yeah, that- I, I, I taught that for many years. Um, and yeah, really, I did the kind of, I think it was a, it was a four-hour block. It was very long anyway, yeah. um, trying to cram as much useful uh, skills, largely skills as to how to approach tricky situations in a law firm to mm. people who are about to be the leaders of the profession. Yeah, it definitely is a tension, isn't it? Because there's this role of a lawyer within society as an access point to justice. That's right. But also it's a business, you know, like it's... Oh, this, yeah. It's because, you know, after a few years after that, I became a partner in a law firm at Lane Neve here in Christchurch. Mm. Um, and... Um, very apparent when you sit around any partnership table. I mean, there's a diversity of people around any partnership table. Mm. Um, But uh, certainly in a firm of that size, um, it is very much a business and the books have to to more than balance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What 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 are some of the key things? I'm just thinking of the listeners here, you know, what are some of the examples of those tensions or ethical situations that you... Oh, look, so, um, well, when I was at um, Lane Neve, a large part of my work, you know, my life is a series of coincidences. So I land in um, Lane Neve as a new partner in 2010, in March, um, and I'm attached to uh, the commercial team, uh, helping them with large transactions. Mm. And uh, that was great. I had a nice office on the 14th floor with a view over the city, and I thought I was pretty much sweet um, and of course in uh, later on in that year September wasn't it mm-hmm. the first earthquake hits um, and uh, having taught insurance law I was probably one of the few um, lawyers in Christchurch who wasn't already working for an insurance company who knew something about insurance and right. so of course when the February earthquake hit and you know a lot of uh, homeowners were you know really struggling um, and insurers um weren't always being helpful, mm-hmm. uh, weren't always being straightforward, um, and um, I was I, I made a decision early on not to work for an insurance company, of which there was plenty of work out there, uh, but to help homeowners. And mm-hmm. I mean, in doing, in ma- even in making that decision, um, it was homeowners almost by definition, if you're going to help all of them, or as many as you can, um, they're not as wealthy as insurance companies. Mm-hmm. So that pitched... That, that's a tension, a business tension, but it was, but it's also about what you can do in your heart, you know, about mm. what the, um, what kind of lawyer you choose to be, mm. and obviously when people came in the door and said I need help, and you would explain your billing arrangements, and um, as you know we do every day, mm. um, you could see their heart sink uh, if they knew that to get what they thought they were entitled to anyway, um, they had to part with large sums of money. Mm. And every time that happens, right, sometimes, um, well, we go through our own analysis of how deserving a person is. Mm. And one of the struggles, of course, is that no one should have to be judged on their deservingness to get something they're entitled to. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that some people are more needy um, and their claim is stronger. um, And when you've 
only got so many hours in the day, uh, they're the decisions that you make. Mm. Um, and you have to balance that against your responsibility and accountability to your fellow partners who are running a law firm on a profit basis. Mm. So that that whole, I think that was around seven years, was fraught with tension. Mm. Um, look, I know that we ran a successful commercial part of the firm uh, but at the same time I'm really um, happy that there were a lot of people out there who um, got great legal services got outcomes that they wouldn't otherwise have got um, for uh, an amount of money which um, was less than a commercial amount mm. yeah it's it's this constant tension and I feel it as well because I do a lot um well quite a lot with social enterprises charities not-for-profits as well yeah. some of them have money and they can pay but some of them don't you know and it's this tension between providing access to a template you know or something that would actually really help you know even a simple thing like a conflict of interest policy or a you know it's it's like where do you draw the line there and 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 what do you do or or not do? yeah and you know one of the i mean one of the things is that our resources including our kind of emotional resources are limited Mm. um and to tell a client who's in dire straits that you can't help them right now because you're having the weekend off Mm. um now if you don't have the weekend off you'll ultimately break you know if you don't look after yourself you'll break but at the same time there's an an immediate and pressing need and that kind of triage um framework that's why i think so many people did get so exhausted um over that earthquake period because we, we were dealing with people who were in far worse circumstances than ourselves seems almost selfish to kind of say well i know i'm making good money and i've got a great job and um and I'm going to now take a weekend away. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. Yep, there's a lot of need out there, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So talk us through, I'm really curious um, about the, the transitions, because it sounds like in your life you've kind of moved from doing this to this to this. So now politics, how did that come <laughs> on your radar? Like, it, it sounds like... Yeah, so... Um, I probably should, we should have said that at the start, right? The mm. politics, but yeah, so Duncan Webb, Labour MP for Christchurch Central. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I've been involved in the Labour Party for quite a long time, since yeah. probably since the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also kind of, I remember when I first got involved, I thought, well, you know, everyone's got a view, um, and but it's easy to kind of equivocate all the time. Mm. Uh, and I thought, no, I, I, I you know, you want, politics to be underpinned by um by values and by the by the underlying principles and mm. you know when i survey the um, what's going on in politics i'm confident that the labor party is the party with the values and principles that i espouse which you know um i did stand up in parliament on one occasion and say i'm a socialist which uh was met with horror um from some uh, members of parliament uh, but again sometimes i say things which i think are straightforward but people find them surprising um, the idea that uh, we should have uh, a government which acts as a safety net um, and which kind of spreads out the inequalities in society um, and is active in doing so seems to me to be a no-brainer uh, so i found it unsurprising to say that i'm i'm a socialist um, and i guess that's always where i've come from uh, is that there is a real role to make sure that those who for whatever reason haven't managed to flourish mm. that there's a role for us to help that to make that 
to make people's lives as good as they can be. Mm. Um, and so that's essentially why I joined the Labour Party, became involved, and you know I, be, I was an active member. Uh, and then um, at one point, when Labour was not in its best position, I thought, look, um, the time's right for me to move out of being a lawyer because for you know age of my children, mm. um, the fact that um, you know money wasn't as big of an issue as it would have been previously, um, and. And just the time was right in politics. I didn't want to come in on the basis that the Labour Party was flourishing. Andrew Little was our leader mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and I said, I'll give um, Christchurch Central a go, currently a national, at that time a national held seat. Yeah. Um, and so that was really what precipitated it. Um, on the basis that, you know, You've got to be all in or all out. You can't mm. dabble at the edges forever. Mm. Yeah. So do you remember it as a distinct moment, kind of looking in the mirror and going, this is it, I'm going to go for it? Or was it more of a gradual sort of... Oh, look, sure, there's a, it's gradual, but there was there was a day where I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, um, I've got to do it now. Yeah. Um, in three or six years' time, it'd be too late. Mm. Um, and ultimately, if I was going to stand for the Labour Party in Christchurch Central in the 2017 election, um, it, it meant that I would cease being a partner at Lane Neve because the two things couldn't go hand in hand. Right. Um, I don't think you can be a... It's, well, it's difficult to be an active left-wing politician um, and a partner in a commercial law firm, right? Mm. Um, so when that call was made, uh, that was you know going to irrevocably changed the course of my life whether I was elected to parliament or not right yeah <laughs> so what are your memories then I guess of that campaign and and yeah I mean it was in having made that decision um, I thought well it's I'm all in right so essentially um, whilst I did a little bit of legal practice as you can imagine winding things down and yeah. providing some additional advice here and there um, it was pretty much a 12-month um election campaign where I took an office in New Regent Street and um, pretty much thought day in, day out, how am I going to let people know that uh, the Labour Party is a great political party um, and that I'd be a great uh, you know, member of parliament for the Labour Party in Christchurch Central. Mm -hmm. So just going out and meeting lots of people and also you know, enthusing people who uh, were supportive of me to take the next step and become kind of active supporters and voices and advocates. And that was a, it was an exciting um, and stressful year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are your, some of your memories then of that time, that campaign? Oh, well, you know, obviously, um, you know, you've got... So the, the, my, um, you know, the, the candidate for the National Party was Nikki Wagner, at that time a, a minister. Her majority was over 2,000 um, and... We were falling in the polls. You know, I can remember when we hit rock bottom. We were in the um, sort of mid-20s, about 27%. And on anyone's analysis, that meant that um, I was going to get a right royal drubbing. Mm -hmm. um, now, that didn't mean we weren't going to still try as hard as we could um, and try to kind of swim against the tide. But that was, um, you know, that was a time when it was hard to get people, you know, out and enthused. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that was when Andrew Little... Uh, moved aside and said, uh, you know, I'm clearly not the one who New Zealand is going to choose to um, lead mm. a, a government. Um, and Jacinda came in and uh, that was, uh, well, you know, I think, I'm not sure who titled it Jacinda Mania, but the uh, phenomenal shift 
uh, in the sense of New Zealanders and the enthusiasm for something which was entirely fresh, right? Um, mm. uh, that was just, it was to be uh, right in the middle of that uh, was absolutely memorable uh, and quite amazing because the shift of, you know, a, a certain sense of inevitable inevitability about being led by the same bloke as we had for not or same government as we had for nine years for another three and the kind of shrug oh dear oh well there's nothing better out there to the real sense of hope and optimism mm. that there was a shift in perspective that was um, just an entirely entirely different philosophy about who we could be and what we can make New Zealand. Mm. What do you think was the key there in terms of the communication? What was it that really got out in a different way? Yeah, I mean, look, and it's, you know, um, I want to be very clear that um, I don't kind of have a yarn to Jacinda every day. She's a bit busy for me. I'm a mere, you know, backbencher. But um, I do, you know, I am lucky to work with her and see her close up um, on, an, you know, on a number of occasions frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, there's no real difference between the conversation you might have with her you know, um, in a social occasion, and the conversations that she'll have when she's doing high policy or trying to c- communicate with the with the nation, the, the so and I think that's important. Um, and so the thoughtfulness and compassion that she'll bring to any conversation, she brings to all of her conversations. I mean, I was, um, you know, the mosque attacks that were a huge tragedy in um, Christchurch and. New Zealand and the world, uh, you know, I was there when she spoke to the families immediately after it, and um, that was um, not scripted or manufactured, mm. um, and I think that's what makes her a great leader, is that she's not constantly reflecting on how she should be framing things, mm. because the way they're framed is the way they are, mm. and that immediacy, the lack of... Uh, filter between the meaning and the message is really important mm-hmm. yeah that's really good it's helpful to hear that perspective as well because for lots of us we kind of you know just see on tv or you know it's yeah. really hard sometimes to to work out you know is this a show or is it real and yeah, yeah and it's yeah it's i guess that's that, my point it, it, it isn't a show yeah, yeah it's the authentic nature of it yeah. yeah yeah that's great so what's it been like then you've been there it's 2021 at the time we're recording this so yeah, yeah what's it like being a member of parliament yeah it's um it's it's a very interesting and diverse job right it's um it's strange that um you know, I've come from my electorate office uh, in the centre of the city, where I've talked to someone today about immigration, of, uh, um, an immigration issue. Someone wants to um, do some co-housing, some co-housing development, um, and, and numerous other issues that come across my desk, as well as having a select committee meeting, um, and then from kind of dealing with you know the very immediate issues of real people about immigration about housing about welfare benefits about the enterprises about the you know central city business all of those kinds of things to then have to kind of switch gears and focus to be in parliament to talk about what major policy shifts we should be taking Um, you know and so sitting in caucus talking about how do we deal with the immigration issues we have across the board which is ultimately rolled out into the announcement that was made yesterday to open up our um, 
you know, residency to 165,000 people currently in New Zealand. So that's an entirely different job, mm. and yet it's one job, you know, and at the same time I've got to get out. And, of course, politics, this is kind of what they call retail politics, talking to you mm-hmm. so that people can listen to this and think, he sounds reasonable or not. <laughs> um, yep. That's part of my job too because in two more years' time, um, I'll be asking people to put me back into the job again, which is um, it's a very uh, long and arduous job application process. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> a very diverse range of things just as you're talking, you know, like the, the variety of people that you meet and yeah. then, you know, thinking on a national level as well as the personal level, like this person here has a need. Can I support them in some way? But then... They represent, you know. 50, yeah, I mean, one others. of one of the important things about our democracy, I think, is um, how close people are to um, the decisions that are being made. And mm. you know, as a backbencher, um, one of my jobs is to be right on the ground, listening to these people, and making sure that if that isn't an outlier case, that. Um, that's known uh, right at the highest level that this is a real problem um, and we need to fix it and how big a problem it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact is that um, you know, pretty much anyone can talk to me, write to me, um, meet me, uh, and, and then their views are close to government. It's a very direct democracy. Mm. And that's the thing that encourages me, and we can kind of shift the conversation to what I'd love to talk to you about, because I think this is an example where there's, um, you've called it sort of this little bill, um, you know, and, and I want to talk about that. But the, the reality is that I, I reached out to you on LinkedIn, I think it was, that's and just right. sent you a message and said, oh, this is really interesting. I'm, you know, excited to see this. And then you reply back. And then, and now here we are, like literally four days later or something yeah, like well, that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And he, and well, working for a great firm like Perryfield helps, right? Because I'm like, <laughs> well, if he's working for my old firm, he must be all right. He must, must be okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm glad that that had a part to play. But you're right, the, the accessibility. But I take real encouragement from that because as a nation, you know, we, we can be examples to the rest of the world because actually if we, you know, think about some of the, where did the first, you know, women's rights come? Mm. Well, it was right here. And, and you look at the history, actually New Zealand has been a world leader so many times. Mm. And I think, wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually be a leader in several different areas, you know, and so that, you know, our great grandchildren listen back to this in a hundred years or whatever, and they go, wow, look what they were talking about in 2021 and look at what happened next. Yeah, I mean, and I do think it's a little, a, a little bill and it's quite... Um I want to straight out of the gate say that um, you know I don't have a long lineage in social enterprise and B Corp and all of the things that uh, you know that all of those areas that are excited about this. I it's another one where I think I've done something which is common sense. Mm-hmm. You know, goes without saying almost. So the bill um, simply changes the duties of if, if passed, and I'm confident it will be, um, changes the duties of directors to make it absolutely clear beyond doubt that they can take into account the wider impacts of what they're doing Mm -hmm. um, when they're deciding what's in the best interests of the company. Now, um, you know, I I don't see that as surprising. And in my view, it's always been the law that if you, you, uh, the directors and the shareholders are essentially at one, that the company has a particular mission, which might be to build more houses for low-income people, Mm -hmm. um, and that's not the most profit-maximising sector of the market, that's entirely okay. Um, now, obviously, there's solvency requirements. 
you know, I know enough about company law to know how that works. Um, but at the end of the day, to say we want to run a company which builds environmentally sustainable houses for our most needy, including Māori, um, that's now that you you might call that a social enterprise. Um, I don't think you need a special vehicle for that. We just need to recognise that the vehicle we have at the moment, the limited liability company is um, a morally neutral vehicle and it's absolutely appropriate for its directors and owners to use it as a vehicle for their own mission and if it's a great mission with real value and ethics then that's even better. Mm. I agree with you. I'm, I wrote a book called Social Enterprises in New Zealand, yeah. a legal handbook, and I stand by it because I think the content is very helpful for people who are on this journey. But in the last year or so, I've used the word social enterprise less and less, and I've used the word impact more and more because what, I've become, what I'm becoming worried about is that it will be something that they do. You know, social enterprise, that's what those that minority in the corner, they do that. Yeah. And actually what I want to see, and I think what you're describing well, is actually transformational change across all companies, that all companies potentially, you know, can yeah, have a Yeah, and this is the play. discussion, I think, that you prefaced in a comment when we were chatting earlier, this um, may or must question, right? Mm. Um, now, I, I guess my view is the vehicle that we've got now, the limited liability company, is is morally neutral. It, it, it's for its owners to impose that on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the law is... Um, sets the moral boundaries. It says what we mustn't do, and on occasion it says what we must. Um, and that's the kind of social compact that we've arrived through our democratic process mm -hmm. um, as to, you know, you cannot recklessly trade because that's entirely unfair and illegitimate to the creditors that you're going to essentially do out of their money. So there's a really good rule of a you may not. Um, I, I'm not sure that I agree that we should have a requirement which goes beyond, for example, the Resource Management Act and the other environmental constraints we have that companies must take into account uh, the impact on the environment or climate change or whatever it is. That's the role of the wider law. Now, to say that they can't, that they must have a profit motive only, this is the Milton Friedman kind of agency theory, that's nonsense as well. Um, but the limited liability company is, um, and, when if, and you know its history better than me, I'm sure, but it was essentially a coming together of, in its early stages, of a group of people with a common purpose. Mm. Um, and for kind of a neoconservative approach to say that purpose must be make as much money as you can, just makes no sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're right. If you go back in the history, like starting there, you know, this is the thing is that we assume that companies have always been there because that's what we know. You know, I, I use this phrase, you know, we're fish in the bowl. This is how it operates. Of course, you're going to set up a company. But go back a couple hundred years, like there was no company. No, I mean, and, but they, the entries, uh, you know, I, I invite you to go through and, and look at various corporate entities that have existed for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, probably the church is one of the oldest ones. Mm -hmm. um, guilds and friendly societies uh, uh, have, have a long lineage. Um, and of course, um, trading enterprises which were given warrants by the Crown and made into corporations, um, 
the South Seas Company, the East India East Company. India. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all kind of precursors um, of what we ultimately saw. So the idea of there being a thing which wasn't a natural person but had legal status some of which was to trade, some of which was to, you know, be charitable. Um, and, and the other, the interesting ones are the guilds and the friendly societies and those kinds of things because we've got this whole other branch of the law around friendly societies, credit unions, industrial and provident societies, which are it's pretty arcane out there. Mm. Um, but they're the old social enterprises, right? Mm. Or impact enterprises. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you go back far enough i think that the what we think of as the limited liability company which is you know we we kind of understand what it is it was actually a way that government was encouraging people to take some risk sure. because rather than it being me stephen moe started up this bakery and then it goes bankrupt and i lose everything it yeah. was a it was a you know ring fencing of liability. Yeah, the, yeah the limitate the limited liability the limited bit of it is uh, yeah. was the real um entrepreneurial encouragement and innovation wasn't it yeah yeah exactly but the thing that i guess i would challenge back at you as well and and representing other people who've written to me um is if you look at the natural progression of where we're heading i mean first of all i think it's great that we're having the conversation we're having the debate so i welcome that and it's awesome um but also if you look over at you know England, your original country, um, and what they've got. In 2006, they passed their Companies Act, and it has a number of considerations, and it says may, you know, the, the directors may consider these things. And it's, it's similar to your list. Um, there's, obviously, it doesn't have Treaty of Waitangi principles mm-hmm. and that type of thing. Um, but what I've observed um, in talking with people is that the discussion has moved on from 2006 and now there's a lot of advocating saying we need this better business act to be passed which would change it from being a may to being a mandatory requirement that that these things are considered by directors so i just wonder if yeah, if, th- if that's you know if in my head if that's where it gets to in the uk that there ends up being a debate there wouldn't it be amazing if we in New Zealand could actually learn from what's been done overseas sure. and even jump over a decade yeah. of not having just it? Just leapfrog those Just ponds. leapfrog it <laughs> um, and get a third-generation yeah, version. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure you will, and I hope a lot of other people will make a submission on this bill because mm. there's a real discussion to be had. It'll be really fruitful. I do think there's two different conversations being had. One is around uh, essentially um, the stakeholder model, right, saying... Uh, what people have a legitimate stake in the um, in the nature of this company, mm. um, and I can see a tenable argument. Not I'm, I'm equivocating on it, but I can see a, you know a good argument that uh, employees, uh, creditors, customers, they're genuine stakeholders. They have a direct relationship. If it was a diagram, it would be a solid straight line, not a dotted line, right? Mm. Um, whereas kind of the wider community, um, the, 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 so that's stakeholders, whereas what my bill does, I think, is says these are the values, you know, these are the, these are the general precepts that you can look to. So there is no direct, linear, solid line to the Treaty of Waitangi, right? It's a dotted line saying mm-hmm. every good New Zealand citizen, corporate or otherwise, lives within an environment where the treaty is 
important and it is absolutely legitimate for an, a limited liability company to say, how does our actions tie up with the wider obligations to Māori um, in, in, in a treaty perspective? Now, I think there's a real discussion, and I'm no expert, but whether that should be broadened out mm. because the treaty is just one aspect of our relationship with Māori. And, I mean, there's some great work being done um, around Māori enterprise and the suggestion that the Companies Act is not a good reflection of Tao Māori, the Māori way or the you know the Māori world. Mm. Um, and maybe we need to broaden that out to say it's appropriate for companies to take into account tikanga um, rather than just the treaty. Mm. Mm. It would be fascinating to watch the submissions come in. For yeah. me, for me, this has actually been. A, I said before we started recording, like I'd, I'd been overseas for eleven years, you know, working at international law firm, so it was a very different context. And coming back to New Zealand in two thousand sixteen, I've learned a lot in terms of Te Ao Māori and thinking in that way, and that's actually starting to influence me more and more. And but what, the reason I'm mentioning that is you you bring in concepts like kaitiakitanga, guardianship, stewardship. And you start realizing that some of the iwi-based companies and, and initiatives are looking at a 100 years, 500 years plan and thinking, actually, maybe we in the West, with our individual nature, have we've, we've gone too far on the scale. Oh, that's right. Like and over- if you look at it's interesting because even uh, uh, if we look at an investment plan, right, we use a discount rate, mm. which by definition has a limited lifespan. Something, will, you know, building a building will be worth the building itself will be worth zero in 100 years' time because that's what our financial modelling does with Mm. a discount rate. So if you take that approach, you would never do anything for 500 years. You would never build the Parthenon. You would never paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, right? Yeah. Which makes no sense. So Mm. there's something deeply wrong um, in there. And that idea that we should be investing now for generations which, you know, are that far away is something that, you know, our framework doesn't isn't well equipped to deal with yeah but that's that's where i take encouragement because i honestly believe in a hundred years people will listen back to this type of recording and maybe we will maybe it's too utopian but maybe we will have been able to move forward and Mm. that's why i take encouragement from this little bill (laughs) is that actually it's it's getting at the the core foundations of what is it that directors need to think about and i know for you and me maybe it's just well, of course they should think about these things, yeah. you know, and, and we don't need to put must. But I actually think there's a, a role to play there that if we truly think that kaitiakitanga stewardship, if those principles can be adopted and brought into mm. our very Western institutional structure of a company, like what would that do if we could really embrace it and do it well in New Zealand and become the world leader in this area? I just see huge potential that other countries could then look at it and go, Wow! Look at what that you know on the edge of the world. Look what they're up to. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I think that's right. Um, you know, I think there's there, you're right. There's a real, but it's a real inquiry. And I mean, even if it's only um, with the May in there saying here's the things you can take into account. I mm-hmm. think that once it's there on the statute book, um, and when you stand up in your Institute of Directors course to hear about directors' duties, you will be told um, that these are the things that it's appropriate to take into account and. 
the concept of the interests, what's the best interest of the company, will be much more expansive because at the at the moment um, that discussion um, is pretty narrow, right? And yeah. certainly, I mean, you, I'm sure we all did company law, um, and it was a very director's duties was a very narrow discussion around, you know, proper purpose and um, conflicts of interest. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually a facilitator for IOD on their company director course, which is that week long one. Yeah. So I talk for four hours <laughs> about director's duties. And yeah, it will definitely help. This is going to be a very good tool for people to understand, okay, you know, it's more than just about the short term profit returns and things. Sure. Yeah. But but I guess at the same time, like it's going to be great to get it through. But I also think what an opportunity to actually say, you know, rather than Stephen having to campaign for the next decade that let's switch it to must and, <laughs> and let's have some other tweaks. Like what a great, what um, a great so, chance. So, I mean, the um, response of advocates to uh, a step in the right direction but so much more to do is pretty <laughs> familiar in the world of politics, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing is I'm really encouraged by it. Um, I've been working on this book, which I'll show you later, um, called Reimagining Business. Yeah. So in this, what I'm talking about is could we have this bigger conception of business rather than a more limited understanding, actually, that it could be wider, well, at the moment, broader? At the moment, and I mean, what's you are steering away from it, but what's been called social enterprise, is, it's, it's this whole idea of being on a continuum, right, mm. uh, between businesses which are highly commercial um, through to the charitable and not-for-profit sector and kind of debunking the myth that you're either in the not-for-profit sector or the for-profit sector. Yeah. Um, that the, the idea that you might be a for-purpose or for-impact is what you are and where you sit on that c- continuum, as long as you're solvent, of course, mm. um, is, is secondary to getting an outcome that's important to you. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the, the word that I use in this little book a lot is the paradigms of thinking that you and I grew up in a certain world where charity was over here and business was over here. And too often charity was seen as being led from the heart and business was seen, being seen as led from the mind, you know, like rational thinking over yeah. here, but we act on our emotions over here. And actually there's an amazing merging that can happen. And then it unifies the heart and the mind yeah. through what can be done, you know, and, and there can be vast impact that maybe in the past, in the sort of greed is good sort of mm. philosophy, we wouldn't have seen that that was a possibility. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said there. But there's a lot of damage that has been done since the 1950s and Ayn Rand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of narrative that um, fierce competition with each other leads to better outcomes um, and that if we are all individualistic and self-interested, then um, you know, in some way the invisible hand will make sure that there's a fair distribution. Now... Adam Smith never said that, of course, and that's one of the great lies that's been perpetrated. Uh, but I do think that that there is um, that that was the dominant narrative uh, for a long time. And whilst we were in an economy that was growing, um, we it, it was kind of able to be shoved under the carpet mm. that that simply wasn't the case, and that even then there were people being left behind, um, and that there was huge damage being done, right? Mm. Whilst our environment could sustain it, we could kind of turn the other way because the rivers were still swimmable and the forests were still there and the wetlands were still there and so on. But now what we're seeing is that 
uh, we're paying the price. Mm. Um, and the costs of addressing climate change, of restoring our wetlands and so on and so forth, um, is going to be massive mm. um, because for a long time greed is good simply meant I will take from the public domain in portions small enough that no one will notice. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But th- this is the thing. There ha- it is an obvious wake-up call when the temperatures start rising and sure. and your house is getting flooded, right? And I think, but this is the other thing, is that if we take that long perspective, and if you had the 100-year perspective or the 1,000-year perspective, then all of a sudden um, what we're talking about here is an incredibly generative you know, I call this the podcast seeds. Things can grow from these ideas. And maybe the next generation will demand more from our companies and will demand more than we ever did in the past. And so all I'm trying to do is be, I guess, a, a gardener along the way and yeah. say, can't we, can't we leapfrog other countries? Because I know the EU is looking at similar initiatives. Yeah, and look, I do benefit. want to make it absolutely clear that this is, it's a member's bill. It's, you can't, one, a boring procedural point, you can't turn it into something it's not. Mm. Um, but it's, um, I'm not committed to the strict wording in that bill. Um, and I've, I'd be interested to see it um, improved, whether it should be expanded, whether it's poorly expressed. Um, you know, it, like I say, it was something which occurred to me when I was listening to a, a rant by David Seymour, which was so off beam that I couldn't believe it. But clearly some did. So I thought, well, at least tidy that up. Um, mm. So like I say, I thought it was I thought it was common sense. Uh, essentially my words with a bit, little bit of help from a drafting assistant. Um, but that's not to say, you know, the parliamentary process and in respect of members' bills in particular is fantastic because you've got a genuine opportunity to change the course of it. Mm. Um, now, at the same time, um, I'm not going to turn company law on its head without the uh, approval of the Minister of Justice and the wider government. So um, let's keep expectations realistic. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> oh, you see the opportunity, go for it. So um, if people are interested in submitting, like, just talk us through what Yeah, so the, the process from now, uh, I mean, again, members' bills are a peculiarly New Zealand phenomenon where um, you, a backbencher, non-minister from any party, um, can put a bill forward for selection mm-hmm. um, and on a given day when there's room in the order paper um, the numbers of the bills are put into an actual biscuit tin right. um, <laughs> they're, they're shaken around and uh, in a public um, little event funny little event they're drawn out um, my bill got drawn so at the moment um, it's on the order paper it's been introduced the next step is the first reading so the very first vote There'll be a number of speeches um, in Parliament. Once it's passed first reading, it goes to the really important thing, which is select committee. So it will be referred to a select committee for consideration and open to submissions from the public. That process usually takes around six months, um, and there's no reason it should be shorter. It's important to have a long period of submissions um, and also time for uh, government officials to look over it and pour over what the public has said and for the politicians who ultimately make the decision to report it back to the House with any improvements and amendments. It's Mm. a tiny little bill. The whole thing fits on half a page. Um, But like you say, it's a significant shift in the way we look at um, company law and what directors are and what they do. But that's the submission process. Then it goes back to Parliament. 
um, for two more readings and a kind of wider discussion in what's called the committee stage. Hopefully, you know, another six or so months, it will come out the other end of the machine um, and be a brand new amendment act to the Companies Act. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, um, there's a lot of people listening right now, so hopefully they're all taking note of the process. Yeah. And then um, maybe we'll post some links or something so sure. people can watch where where it is. Yeah, just uh, and if you do go on the um, Parliament website, parliament.govt.nz, um, the, the select committee process is well set out, and you can see the process of any bill and where it is. Mm, that's great. Yeah, no, I think this has been a great discussion, but it also highlights to me, even like when I first got back to New Zealand after my time away, I don't think this sort of conversation was happening as much. And so I just want to acknowledge people like, you know, the Akina Foundation and the work that they've been doing in laying groundwork for some of these discussions. Yeah, they're um, well known. Yeah. Because particularly their impact initiative, um, I was involved in helping to author a paper called Structuring for Impact. Which I've was, got that paper. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's good resources out there. There's been some good thinking that now maybe we can draw on. And I know that the Aotearoa Circle as well, their sustainable finance um, roadmap, that's an amazing resource. And then the IOD just came out with their stakeholder governance paper recently. Yes, and I've seen that as well. So yeah, yeah, so at least I'm reading some of the right materials. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) But it shows the, the shift. Like I think, like I say, even five years ago, six years ago, I don't think we would have had this sort of a conversation but there's but there's a lot that's advancing. Yeah, and I do think it's incremental. I mean, obviously, um, there are risks in there, and we need to be vigilant that people aren't talking the talk but not walking the walk. Mm. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's a real encouragement that you know most companies of any significance are turning their minds to mm. uh, what their impact is. In respect of you know their workforce and the, the environment, um, the wider community and so on. I mean, and I think that's great. Now, in a sense, I think they're very smart to get ahead of regulation um, because there's nothing more disruptive for a company or business or enterprise to have to catch up when mm. they're told reduce your waste or stop your environmental practices or whatever it might be. Um, but at the same time, it's just good citizenship. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's really it's fascinating listening to you and, and hearing the background to it as well. So I really great. appreciate that. Um, this this little book, The Reimagining Business One, is coming out next year, I think. But I've also done a collection of essays, which I'll give to you, um, which is all about this concepts of what could business be in the future, you know, if, if we had a long-term perspective. And it looks at other things like what would be what, what could the role of creatives be on the board, you know, rather than just your traditional lawyer, accountant, you know. <laughs> sure, oh, absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, and look, um, diversity comes in many forms, right? Um, yeah. And I think one of the things we've learned uh, is that the more diverse your organisation is, the more resilient it will be, the more imaginative it will be, mm. and the more productive it will be. Mm. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it because I know there's lots of different commitments in your role, um, but I've really enjoyed hearing about your life. Also, just that beginnings you know like coming here hearing about your father and his his role and his work and then um, how you ended up studying law the different 
ways that your your career has taken you and then also to be able to focus in on this particular point at this moment in time i think is really helpful and i know that there's hundreds of people who are going to be listening to this um, who are going to really appreciate having the background and also i hope that they feel encouraged to get involved in the process and actually submit something absolutely look it's been a real pleasure to be here and it's still you know all these years in the law it's still exciting times it's great to be here and able to make some change kia ora I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know for me, there were lots of highlights. As you could tell, we had kind of a stimulating discussion there about the future of business and director duties. And it will be interesting to see where we get to. I would really encourage all of you to submit proposals about this bill because we can actually make a difference. And wouldn't it be amazing if it got strengthened so that we moved from a may to a must type of wording in the bill? And don't forget, I've got this book of essays laying the foundation for reimagining business. So make sure to be watching social media and it's going to come out in a few weeks. But I'd really love your help to promote it so that the ideas within it can get spread. Until next time. Mm